some of you who've been watching my stuff for a while know that I have this concept called a lamentation. Um, and it's, you know, it's bad. It's bottom of the barrel. You have to go past bad in order to hit lamentation status. In fact, I think I mentioned this already, but I decided to look it up to get specifics. I've had a grand total of three lamentations in the history of my show ever. I can name all three of them. Uh, Final Fantasy All the Bravest, Threshold, Star Trek Voyager, and Star Trek Nemesis, you know, Star Trek X. And now I have to bump that up to four. But the thing is, people have been asking me for the better part of the last couple of years, you know, is such and such going to be a lamentation? You know, is, uh, is Grey Gray 17 is missing? Is that going to be a lamentation? You know, is Shades of Grey going to be a lamentation? And the hard truth is, I don't know until I go through it with analysis mode on. And it has to really, again, it has to be worse than merely bad in order to truly qualify as a lamentation for me personally. I'm pretty strict about that requirement. So it may surprise you to learn that as I started going through this episode, I was like, wow, this is not as bad as I remember. I mean, obviously it was bad. I can't argue that. But it wasn't nearly as bad as as I was as I was remembering, as was in my head. And I'm like, okay, sure, whatever. Right about at the 17 minute mark, and I, I took notes here. Right about at the 17 minute mark, it started nosediving, and then it got worse at the 18 minute and 31 second mark, and then at the 23 minute and 9 second mark. And by that point, I was legitimately angry, as in. I was on Discord while I was watching this, my Discord, and I was having a conversation, completely unrelated conversation, uh, with a couple of viewers, and I actually got snappy. You know, I, I snapped at them, because I was just in that much of a bad mood from this episode. <sighs> Most of the people involved uh, don't like this episode. I have heard the occasional defense of this episode. Probably the biggest defense I usually hear about this episode, and this is probably damning with faint praise kind of a situation, but biggest defense I usually hear is, well, if you ignore the racism and sexism, it's not that bad. I've also heard some people say, well, I don't think it's racist, or I don't think it's sexist, which, I mean, I, I suppose that at least could be argued. Maybe? Kinda? <laughs> I mean, yeah, really? Except there's too many meta things going on with that. And th that leads me to my next thing I want to comment on. You notice I have no background. It's because I, I don't have a background that really suits lamentation status. I have nothing that's bad enough. I, d I don't want to taint any of my backgrounds that I pay real money for to buy my, you know, my looping backgrounds for, for this. I, no. You'll also notice I removed the imperial symbol over there because I don't want that symbol on this episode. I don't want them connected at all. Let's talk about Catherine Powers and Russ Mayberry. Uh, some of you may know who these people are. This is one of those weird situations, though. So here's the thing. Why is this episode so bad? We don't know. I'm just going to open that. I don't know why this episode is so crap. Because, as I will talk about more later, even if you remove the racism elements, even if you remove 
the sexism elements, even if you move, remove the character assassination, which I'll get to that later, it's still a bad episode. Like, even if you ignore everything else, it's still badly written drivel. So, why is this like this, you know? Now, the thing is, I would like to blame Catherine Powers for this. She hasn't exactly done a lot of scripts. In fact, the only other script that she is noteworthy of, in my opinion, is the episode Emancipation. Now, you're probably thinking, I don't remember that Star Trek episode. That's because it's a Stargate episode, Stargate SG-1. Now, for those SG-1 fans out there, yes, I do plan to look at SG-1 some year. Obviously, that's way back on the back burner. But um, I want to tell you a story that some of you might have heard. I, uh, I was watching Stargate SG-1 when it came out. I was kind of excited for it. And so I, I was watching it, and it got to, you know, it was the first couple episodes that helped establish things, you know, get the new status quo, new actors, etc. And then, like, the second or third episode, I forget which, but very, very early on, was the episode Emancipation. It was so bad that I stopped watching the show, and I didn't turn back. I, I was like, nope, I got other things to do with my time. It was years before I finally went back and gave SG-1 another shot. And I am glad I did. It's a good show. Um, but I just want you to keep that in mind of how much that affected me. And that's the other episode she's worked on. Now, I bring that up because that is significant. What we have here is a lack of concrete facts. So we have to enter the realm of speculation to figure out what the hell went wrong. We have to diagnose this situation, or troubleshoot it, if you will. So she has had submitted an original script, and I've seen the original script draft, and uh, I'm like, okay. The original script draft looks very hokey and very original series, but not nearly as bad as what we have. You know, there's going to be this whole alien captain, and then they're on this planet, and they kidnap Yar to fight his son, and he's actually trying to seize power from the local lord, so you have to escape, and all that fun stuff. You know, okay, that sounds at least more interesting. How did that turn into this? I have no information for how that turned into this. Okay, so what elements that make this episode badly written came from her? Well, we look at Emancipation. We use that as our, uh, our, our correlating evidence and say, okay, well, based on emancipation, what was really so bad about emancipation? Well, there's two big things about emancipation that, in my opinion, really made it bad. Character assassination and sexism. So, we could probably attribute those two things to Catherine Powers. Now, this is pure speculation. I want to stress that because we don't know. But that leaves some holes there, because that doesn't explain why it's so badly written, and it doesn't explain why it's so racist, right? We've got the other two problems here. Well, let's look at Russ Mabry. He's the director, or rather, he was the director. This is his sole directing credit for TNG, and he was fired in mid-production, and it was handed off to one of the assistant directors, who, who had been an assistant director before, and will be so for several future episodes. But someone who, to put it as bluntly as possible, doesn't really know how to handle a directorial job by himself. He doesn't, he's not used to mainlining that, okay? So... That might help to explain a few things, because the reason that some accounts, there's some differing accounts on this one, but the reason some accounts say Russ Mayberry was kicked out the door, by Roddenberry no less, was because he himself, as in Mr. Mayberry, was rather anti-black prejudiced. Okay, 
And it's worth noting, by the way, that in the script, both the original script and the, the one that actually went to, went to print, there was no mention of these people all being black. This was not supposed to be the black planet. That was on Mayberry and his casting decisions. Now, I want to add one other piece of evidence against Mayberry, and that evidence is Jesse Ferguson. Now, he's the gentleman who plays Luton in this episode. Now, normally the way this goes when it comes to me analyzing work is I, I try to defend an actor by saying, I've seen this actor do good acting, but they don't do good acting here, so, you know, la 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 la, right? Well, I can't say that here because he's not a good actor. But he's not this bad of an actor. And, now this is really relevant, he was a very minor actor, okay? Uh, pretty pretty early on in his, I shouldn't say early on in his career, but low tier in, in his career path. And he was a career actor. Now that's relevant because he was being offered the primary guest star slot in a new Star Trek show. Remember, the Star Trek brand was really big at this point in time, and this was a primary guest star slot, which is usually seen as a leg up to actually being a main cast member in uh, in in television, okay? So this is a huge career move for him. What that is relevant for is because I think with, with certainty we could say that Ferguson was doing his damnedest and trying the best he could with his role. But we still get the performance of Luton that we get. Which means he was probably directed to give that performance. Which means that Mr. Russ Mayberry thought that the best possible performance for the political leader of a planet or a region, they never really quite specified. They treat this planet like it's a city, I swear to God. That's another TNG problem. We'll, we'll get into that later. Um, but he, he, he behaves as if, he's, as if he's trying to sell a 7-Up, for God's sakes. I mean, I, I know Sci-Fi Debris already made that joke, but it's so apt. If, you, if I know some of you probably don't even know what I'm talking about. Go look up, like, old 7-Up commercials. There's a guy, ooh, I, I can't do it. You know, oh, he talks like this. I don't need to do that. You know, pretty much exactly the same thing Luton was doing. Based on that, I think we could put at least the racist elements on Russ Maber. And, of course, he was fired for that, so. But that still leaves the badly written. Well... I don't have a blame figure for this one, but remember how I mentioned the original script was something so different that it might as well have been a completely separate episode? I'm thinking we had some rewrites. I mean, obviously we had some rewrites, but what I mean by that is there's a lot of different possibilities that could have happened here. Maybe she was told to rewrite it. Maybe Roddenberry started doing his own rewrites, which wouldn't surprise me. Maybe they were rushed, and so they just kind of did hasty rewrites. Maybe Meislish pushed forward, pushed forward some of these rewrites. He was alleged to have done things like that during his, his tenure at early TNG, especially season one. So someone involved pushed rewrites. We know this. Somewhere at some point there were rewrites, and they were... Uh, well, I, I don't want to say rushed through, because uh, I looked up the timing. It was three months. They had three months from original draft to the one that put on screen. That's a decent amount of time for rewrites, so I can't actually say it was rushed unless it was rushed and they just... Because this happens sometimes. You have the, the original script and no one touches it until it's like the week before you have to start, you know, going on front of the set and recording footage. And so it's like, oh, God, quick, we need to fix the script. But I don't actually have an answer for that one. I'm sorry, guys. And all of this is still speculative. I really don't know. But I wanted to know, and I know that sounds weird... Obviously, it's my job to report on this kind of a thing. But I wanted to know, for my own purposes, why is this episode so crap? 
And I figured it out. It's because Michael Dorn wasn't in it. If Worf was there, it would have all been... No, I'm kidding. I do want to share a funny little anecdote, though. Anybody who watches my streams know that I like to do counters. Just for fun. You know, see how many instances of something happen in a game or a movie or whatever. I decided to write down how many times they said the word honor in this episode. Any guesses before I tell you? It's actually less than I thought it would be, but still... They say the word honor, and I might have missed a couple, no less than 16 times in this episode. 16. Now, that, may, that probably doesn't sound as impressive, but I want you to consider the, the relative frequency of that. That means roughly, on average, every three minutes during this episode, someone is saying the word honor. This is all averaged out math, of course, but you, you get the idea, right? Every three minutes, someone name drops honor. <sighs> so what I'm going to do it's difficult to do the format of this because the four pillars of badness here are what I really want to talk about but I kind of want to talk about the episode itself so let's just kind of talk about the episode itself and, and we'll kind of talk about the pillars as we go so first of all first thing that happens oh actually I'm sorry I want to show you one other thing I thought about this last night would you believe I've actually watched this episode twice for this rumination oh excuse me lamentation it took, it's hard to explain, but basically I went through it, and I was like, okay, I'm, this is, no, hang on, took a few steps back, sat down, you know, got my notes, I didn't actually take notes the first time around, but basically I was, I was indisposed, didn't have access to my computer, and I had my phone, so I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll watch this episode and kind of prep myself for it, right, so... Second time watching it, I was watching for a couple of things. I already had some ideas, too, and I'm like, ugh. And the second time was the time where I was like, oh, man. I really wish... Uh, I, I'm still not 100% sure if this is going to be a, a lamentation or not. But I want to share something weird with you guys. I wish I could do a lore run of this, move, of this episode. Now, what I mean by that is the lore run format... Obviously, you know, the implication is you play through a game and you talk about the lore. But the format is all about having it right here on the screen and then I can pause the game or I could point to things and say look there that explain discuss you know ruminate lore whatever right that's the whole point of a lore run usually I uh, there are certain games and I've kind of gotten a sense for this over the years that you know this game is is worthy of talking about or this game has lots of subtlety or nuance you know in a rumination all I can tell you is there's lots of subtlety and nuance and I won't point out a lot of individual examples because that just turns into busy work but when I'm lore running it I can actually pause and say look there and there and look how he's reacting to this and notice his expression here stuff like that I wish I could do a lore run of this episode because I want to point out every goddamn instance of when it's really terrible because there are many. And as I just mentioned, I'm not going to go over every single one of those because that would just get into busy work. So all I'm going to say is that there's lots of individual moments in this that aggravate me, and we'll move on from there. So, first thing they do is they beam onto the cargo bay. Now, obviously, the real reason for this was because they had finally built the cargo bay set and they wanted to do something with it. Okay, fair enough. They would actually redo that set in uh, Season 2, I believe. Sometime in Season 2. I forget the exact timing. But they wanted to use the set, okay, and they wanted to roll out the carpet, and they had to have an open space for that. Okay, fair enough, I'm with that. Um, then Picard goes down, and we see, not textbook, but a pretty bad example of a concept called As You Know. Now, 
<laughs> as you know, is a phrase that I use to refer to bad exposition, a specific type of bad exposition. As you know, would be the idea of we, me walking up to my sister. My sister, who is, who is my sis, who I have been with for however many years at this point, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to give away ages, but you get the idea, right? You know, and said, so, sis, you know, as you know, uh, I, I am your brother. And, you know, we, we had lots of fun in World of Warcraft once upon a time. And, of course, we're collaborating on, on a fictional work thing. And she would say, of course, brother, and as you know, I've been working on my own fictional work on the side. You know, that is what as you know is. And it bugs the crap out of me when fiction does that because it's really, really unnatural to see that. It's, it's, it's practically creative writing 101 of what not to do. Do not do this. Do not try to get out exposition by having characters tell each other things that they already know just so the audience can hear it. There are literally dozens of other ways you can do exposition that don't involve this. In fact, that's literally what the captain's log's purpose is in many cases. To get, you know, get the audience up to date on what's going on. While I'm here, I hate to point out another little detail that's terrible here, but at some point in time, Riker gives a log entry. Now, again, from a narrative perspective, the purpose of a log entry and showing it on camera, listening to it on camera, is so that we, the audience, can get quick, easy exposition to get us up to date on things. That's its entire purpose. So when you have a, cap a, a commander's log, Riker's log, which literally just summarizes the last couple of bits of episode, that's not good writing. There is literally no reason for that to be on camera. It implies no new information, and it does nothing for the viewer. But I digress. So they're taking the turbo lift down, and Troy is telling Picard about these people, and Data's telling... And, and, and this could be explained. It is entirely possible that Picard, and forgive me for using future knowledge here, but who is someone who is interested in archaeology and history, someone who obviously cares about his ship and running it well, has decided to know nothing about these people, and so he needs to be told about these people by his ship's counselor. I mean, that is possible. Maybe he really is that goddamn incompetent. I don't know. <sighs> Sorry, I'm already getting... I, I just finished the episode, my second watch through, and anger is still a thing here. This is the third episode of Star Trek. I, I want to really stress that point for a second. This is the third episode of TNG. We had Encounter at Farpoint, which stumbled a little but had some good moments. Naked Now, nothing more needs to be said, and this one. How did TNG ever survive this? God. Ah, And you know what's funny? Uh, well, I'll, I'll get there later, but I was going to say, even as a kid, I remember looking at this episode and being like, wait, that doesn't make sense at several key points, but I'll get to it when we get there. So then we have Luton and his ridiculous things. His ridiculous culture, that's ridiculous. What? I'm going to be honest about it, his culture is ridiculous. Now, there's a framework of politics there, and I say framework because it's so badly represented that it's kind of silly. Their whole honor thing is basically just another word for politics. Okay, I can kind of get behind that idea. That's basically what's going to go on with the Klingons. And I will talk extensively about Klingons and their two types of honor and the Klingon political machinations when we get there, uh, probably in TNG and DS9 both. But um, it's 
bad. I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have a better way to say it. The idea is, the kernel of the idea here is clearly that there is uh, things that are expected of people. You know, kind of like the old aristocracy method. You have to have a casus belli to go to war. You have to have uh, a right to a certain thing or a legal claim based on blood or marriage or whatever. You know, all those things that are actually intangibles but are expected because that's the process. That's the culture. That's how things work, right? You with me? That's the system. So this honor thing is their system. Okay, I can kind of get behind that. But <laughs> they're I you know what? Let me just let me just move forward. So they have a pasted on scar and I'm sorry for bringing this up. I know this is such a tiny nitpick. But the 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 the, the makeup department did a terrible job with this because Luton has this scar. It's like right over his left chest right here. And it's so clearly like a decal that has been pasted on. You can see the tape, basically, that's taping it on there. And it's distracting every scene it's in. Of course, you probably didn't see this in the original DVD. Lord knows I never caught it before. On the Blu-ray, it's a lot more obvious. Whatever. So, let's talk about the first thing that pisses me off about this episode. And that would be the fact that we can't reproduce this vaccine. Now, I really want to discuss this. I was having a discussion on this in Discord. Now, I want to make this absolutely clear. If we are to be as absolutely fair as possible, we are staring at the Federation of Planets on their best ship with one of their best doctors who stares at a vaccine, which I remind you is a artificially constructed thing. It's in a vial and everything. So this isn't like some herb or some plant. So that argument's out, okay? So they have this vaccine that they cannot reproduce. Now, they keep saying the word rip replicate, and I feel like that was a cheat on behalf of the writers, because the idea that they can't plug it into the computer and replicate a new one in the replicators, okay, I can kind of see that. And if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong about this, but the, I haven't seen any replicators thus far on TNG. So it's entirely possible that they don't, they don't have them installed yet or whatever. Okay, I'll, So to be as absolutely fair as possible, they don't have replicators, okay, but they still can't use their incredibly advanced medical technology to scan and determine the chemical composition of this thing in order to try and reproduce it, you know, like we can do in real life. Oh, of course, I forgot their tricorders and scanning equipment literally couldn't tell that Jordy was drunk. So maybe that's just another thing that hasn't been installed yet? I mean, this is, it, it, I didn't really intend for this to be a running theme, but apparently there's just a lot of equipment that the, the Enterprise-D just does not have. <sighs> so, that's the first thing that pisses me off, that they have this vaccine that this ass-backwards planet, who is extremely technologically unadvanced, who don't have space travel, who don't have... I mean, they have transporters, but they don't have ships, and they have force fields... But they don't... It's all over the place. The technological advancement of these people is all over the place. But apparently they're so good at making this one vaccine, which happens to be useful for some other virus on some other planet, in some other system, actually, excuse me, completely unrelated to them. They're just like, oh, we have this vaccine, which we have produced, and this... I can't even, I can't even do it. We have this vaccine that we have produced, and it's good for that one thing over there. Were we contacted? Are we no are these people known for their vaccinations? Also, while I'm on the subject, a vaccine I, I, I mean I hate to really nitpick, but that's not how a vaccine works. A vaccine is not a cure. 
That's not what vaccination is. Anyways. So, that's the first thing that pisses me off, of many. Then we have the fact that they have the... There's probably a term for this. We're going to call it the you-have-no-balls diplomacy, okay? Yeah, I'm getting a little coarse here, and I apologize, because this episode has legitimately pissed me off. I despise this in real life and in fiction. Now, maybe that's just me and my mentality, and I'll freely admit that, and I don't want to get into any political crap, so let's just leave the political crap at the door, please. Please. But it irritates me on a very deeply personal and professional level when a diplomat diplomatizes, it's a new word, look it up, I'm kidding, um, by doing everything the other person demands of them, no matter how ridiculous or stupid. Now, this happens a decent amount in Star Trek. I, 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 there's a couple of episodes where I really wish that at some point someone walked forward and said, I, uh, Welcome to our planet. It is the honorary greeting of our planet to dance on one foot while spinning around. And then they wait patiently while Picard, Patrick Stewart, has to go, Okay, hang on, let me just... Because that's how it feels many times. I am reminded, and again, I'm not going to get into real life examples. This happens in real life too. But the ridiculousness that we have to go through to bend to their whims in order to obtain this vaccine is kind of insane and frankly insulting. Now, I know, I know. This is the Federation. They're better. They don't use, you know, diplomacy that involves actually having a spine. That would be ridiculous. And there's another thing about that that we'll get to later. But you can't tell me that the word compromise doesn't exist in their dictionary. Because that's what diplomacy actually is. Common ground, reaching out to people, having them reach back, finding some kind of method by which you can coexist. Not the, Diplomacy is not a parasitic relationship. At least it shouldn't be. But that's exactly what this is. This is not coexistence. This is not cooperative. This is parasitism which I'm just pronouncing correctly, which destroys my argument. I'm, I'm so upset I can't even pronounce it. This is being a parasite. They are a parasite, and we're saying, yes, please, more, so we can get whatever thing we can get out of them. That's not... Moving on. So then they show the holodeck. This is the second usage of the holodeck ever, actually. And they have uh, basal martial arts training usage, which is kind of cool. One thing I want to point out, this will be relevant later, and I want to sow the seeds as early as possible. The way they present the, for lack of a better term, AI of the holodeck is actually quite basic. It's the kind of AI that we have access to now. I shouldn't even call it AI, because it isn't. It's just programming at this point. Um, but that's important, and that'll be important in the future. You know, it's, it's a learning algorithm, but that doesn't mean anything. You know, a lear learning algorithm is the kind of thing we've had in computer programming for years and years, right? You know, if you do X, then they now have access to X kind of a thing. You know, simple. But I kind of like that idea. And I also like how it's uh, our first look of the holodeck itself, although it's not the fully designed set yet. Again, new set. And, I don't know, I just like the idea that Tashi R goes down there and beats the crap out of people to unwind. Something about that amuses me. Anyways, so... <sighs> did I mention that... Uh, 
Ron Jones did not do the music of this episode. Once again, it was immediately obvious. In fact, as I was listening to the music, I'm like, this is really... Like, I thought I actually heard some original series songs in this episode every now and again. Like, I'd be watching and I'm like, hang on, that's a TOS theme. Oh, wait, no, it isn't. It's just very, very similar. Turns out, the guy who did the music, I don't even write his name down. Idiot McGee. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. I'm... He's a fine composer, but the music is very original series, and it feels legitimately out of place, especially since he chooses to do musical stings in all the wrong moments. Which brings me to what I'm about to talk about. There's a scene where Luton says, I like you, to Tashiar, and this music goes, da 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 you know. What? <laughs> and it does that several times in the episode. It almost feels like someone's doing a parody track on top of the actual episode, you know, to try and try and add some hilarity to the ridiculousness of the situation. So then they kidnap Tashiar. Ugh. Okay. You know what, before I get into that, I want to talk about one other thing. Well, no, I'll save that for later. I'll save that for later. Let's let's talk about the Tashiar thing, because they kidnapped Tashiar. Now, the Prime Directive will be mentioned later, and I'll discuss that later. But Prime Directive doesn't actually cover this type of situation. Forgive me. Forgive me. But... Original series, you know, if if news... I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't remember the exact quote, but there's a scene I want you to be reminded of. It's Kirk who's saying to Spock, you know... Uh, Spock says uh, if news of the reality of their situation were to be unveiled, it would irrevocably change their culture. And Kirk says that's absolutely true, but wouldn't that be preferable to annihilation, to you know, to genocide? And Spock says, yes, logical. Now, I mention that because the Prime Directive hasn't been mentioned or discussed at all in TNG. This is the first time it's brought up, right here. And the Prime Directive is being used as a shield for a lot of the actions in this episode. And I'll get a little bit more into that later when it really comes up. But all you need to know right now is that one of their senior officers was kidnapped. And so the first thing they do is they shoot a bunch of torpedoes 1,000 meters over the surface, although either they... Either Riker is the worst shot in the world, or I don't know what else, because even in the special edition, even in the Blu-ray version with the updated graphics, it's clear that they're shooting that into high atmosphere, as opposed to a thousand meters off the surface. If you don't know how, how close that is, I mean, that's the kind of thing that if you're sitting here looking up, you could see those detonations, like, right there, basically. I mean, a thousand meters isn't exactly a small amount of space, but one click up, one kilometer into the air is the kind of thing that would probably, the, the shock waves and reverberations, if you were to detonate over them, say, some skyscrapers, would probably either knock the skyscrapers over, depending on the, the, the strength of the torpedoes, or at the very least cause some certain vibrations and shattering of glass kind of a situation. That's really, really close to the surface, is what I'm trying to say. Of course, Riker fails, so that, that has no effect whatsoever. Um, and then they can't find Lieutenant Yar. Now, that aggravated the ever-living piss out of me, because one of the things that has always pissed me off about Star Trek, and I talked about this a lot over in Voyager, Voyager episode Resistance comes to mind immediately, is when a clearly less advanced or less powerful power somehow just gains the advantage over the crew of the Voyager or the Enterprise-D or whatever. And that will happen in TNG in the future as well, even in better episodes than this one. 
irritates the hell out of me when they do that. If you want to have it that the Enterprise isn't going full tilt because they're holding themselves back or they don't want to destroy or kill, fine. Don't have the other side literally just better because the script says so. Because somehow, they can't find Tasha Yar. Now, that pissed me off to begin with. Then someone, a Dreadlord Loki, uh, mentioned something on my Discord, and I was like, "You're hang on, hang on. And I rewound the episode back to that point. When Yara's brought back out later in the episode, she has her comm badge on. I honestly don't even feel like I need to explain that, but just on the off chance... Anyone's going to play Devil's Advocate on this. I point out that in the previous episode, they established that those comm badges are how you can track people. Jordy made a point of taking his off, and that's why they were having trouble finding him. Okay? Ignoring the fact that they can and do find people regardless of comm badges, because they have sensors that can scan planets from space, let's ignore that for a moment, that comm badge is a bright, shining beacon of this is where this person is. That's that's half of their purpose. The other half being you know, the communications part. And they've already established that in TNG up till this point in time. Previous episode. So that's not like future knowledge. So you, you can't argue that, well, maybe they didn't have that yet. No, that's already been shown. So... Yeah. Also, apparently, at no point in time does anyone think to just to, you know, Picard to Lieutenant Yar, nor does Yar apparently think to go, Yar to the captain. Now I know the easy answer. Oh, well, they were blocking the signal. Wow, that's really impressive for people who are so technologically weird. And I'm going to say it that way. I I'm one of those people who advocates the idea that not all technology progresses equally. You know, there's not like one universal tech level, right? You could be advanced in weaponry and cloaking tech while not being advanced in medical tech or holographic tech or scanning tech. Cough, cough, Klingons, right? I mean, that does make sense. But these people have transporters, force fields, and that's actually it. That's all we see as far as their, how advanced they are technologically. Everything else is wooden sticks, lightweight metal things with, with, with super poison, alkaloid-based poison on them. Oh, and the ability to make mega-vaccines, apparently. That is such a weird spread of technology that I don't even know what to say of it. Maybe it's my fault for the fact that this episode was directed and written in such a way that these people come across as primitives who are inferior and insignificant in, in a technological sense to the Enterprise. Also, I feel like pointing out, it has actually just occurred to me, at what, the second to last bit of the episode has one of them say, you may be more advanced in technology, flat out admitting that they are more advanced in technology. But no, 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 no. Somehow they can block her, her comm badge. And the fact that she's the only human on the planet. <laughs> and they can't find the transporter, too. So... Okay. Okay. That's cool. Well, I know what we should do. We should deal with this like it's a serious threat. Oh, wait, no. That would actually add some drama and tension to the episode. The tone of the of these scenes were so confusing that I actually watched them a third time. Because it, I, I thought I was missing something, legitimately. It's like, it starts off, Alright, they've kidnapped Yar, and this is seri you know, serious music is playing. And then it just, like, dies. Like, the tone of the episode, the drama and the tension just whoo, 
And then all of a sudden, no, Captain, we need to be talking about this. And, and everyone just starts talking in calm, peaceful tones, and the music dies down, and everything's nice and peaceful, and it's just... It, it, it gave me tonal whiplash going through these scenes, because then everyone's like, no, what we should do, we should wait, we should wait. Their culture is very methodical, and everyone, everyone tells Picard this. Picard is the only person who isn't on board with this, yet everyone else, Riker, Data, Troy, uh, I guess that's it, actually. Oh, no, Jordy was involved, too. Every, everyone else steps up and says, no, 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 it's okay. When a female member of our crew has been kidnapped by a bunch of guys who we have flat out admitted on camera have sexual attraction to her, we should just sit back and wait for a day. Now, I know that sounds kind of disingenuous, but let me really hammer that point in. I know that a day doesn't sound like a long period of time, okay? I want you to imagine, let's go with the best possible scenario, okay? You're in a cage, all right? You have nothing to do, nothing to occupy your mind, and people have kidnapped you, okay? Now, if you can, and I, I don't blame you if you can't, picture what it would be like to wait a day under those circumstances. Because that day is suddenly going to get a lot longer. And that's best case scenario. There's something else that pisses me off about this, and I think this is a good time to go into this. I'll go ahead and talk about this now. Well, and then, 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 then. change my mind, change my mind. It comes up even more later. So they wait for a day. What's also interesting is they're like, okay, we'll wait. And then there's like a captain's log. It's been a day is, is basically what happens. And then they start looking for her. Then they start actually trying something. In one whole day, 24 hours, they hadn't found her or her comm badge, or her life signs, or anything whatsoever, still hadn't, still were trying to find Luton's compound and figuring out, you know, it was like, we believe we found, we've, we're scanning his actual head, you know, political headquarters kind of a thing. And they're, I'm sorry, that, they, they haven't done anything. It's like they literally are like, well, Yar's been kidnapped. Um, anyone for uh, waffles? I could really go for some waffles right now. And everyone was like, yeah, 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 waffles sounds great. And they wander off. I'm sorry. I can't believe I'm doing this, but <laughs> I want you to picture how Janeway would have reacted to this situation. Tuvok, we'll use the equivalent, Tuvok has been kidnapped by a planet of primitives who can somehow mask the transporter and who can somehow mask his comm signal and who can somehow mask his life signs. Okay, whatever. Do you think Janeway would say, well, uh, okay, I guess we'll just hang out. Do nothing. No, of course she bloody wouldn't. God damn. In fact, to be blunt, I don't think Picard would do that. Or how about Cisco? Or Kirk? Or even Archer. So they wait a day. And then they have this absolutely bizarre scene with Crusher and Picard. Where she comes in and she's like, oh my god, people are dying, we have to go. It's super serious. It's so serious that it's actually very forced. Now this is relevant because Gates McFadden and Patrick Stewart have genuinely good chemistry on camera together. That's actually already been true in both of the previous episodes. But this one... 
it feels like you just put two strangers in a room and had them read dialogue that, that isn't theirs, you know, isn't speaking with their own voice. So it comes across as two actors acting at each other rather than, you know, two people having a conversation. And then Picard comes out and says, Wesley, why don't you sit at Ops? Okay. Ignoring for the moment that we have two crises going on. A kidnapped crew member. And I want, I'm going to keep emphasizing that word. This is not like, you know, we have invited you for a diplomatic meeting and then blah, blah, blah. No, no. She has been kidnapped against her will. And we have a plague of doom, which is constantly emphasized as having a possible death toll of the millions, which is getting bad now, actively. So, two crises going on here. But, Wesley, come sit at the con. Okay, hold on. First of all, now's not the time. However, if you're willing to be absolutely fair, why not put him to one of the other stations in the back? I'm serious. One of the engineering panels, one of the science panels. Wesley wants to be on the bridge. Picard, for whatever reason, whether it's because... Okay, okay. you know, I haven't brought this up yet. Some people think that Wesley is actually Picard's son. Now, I don't think that's true because, and I'm going to go ahead and say this as bluntly as possible, because none of the writers would have, would have allowed that. None of the people writing this series would have been okay with that concept. That's, that's not happening. However, there is no denying the fact that Picard is way too lenient and, and nice on Wesley than he is anyone else, and it's directly because of Beverly Crusher. You can infer his motives or, mo or, or why he's doing this on your own. I'll leave that to you. But I do want to address one other thing really quick, because this is before where no one has gone before. Uh, I think that's like two episodes or now or something like that. It, it's it's soonish, But that hasn't happened yet. That's relevant because that episode is the one that emphasizes that, you know, Wesley is super special and super smart, and, you know, you need to encourage him to, to figure out warp drives and ship stuff and all that, right? He is a savant of ships. Encourage him. Okay, that hasn't happened yet. So the only possible motive at this point in time is it's a kid of a friend. Or whatever else motive you want to give to that. And again, that's up to you. But even if you allot all of that, and you say, okay, fine, even during a crisis situation, why not? Why put him at ops? Why put him on the freaking con? Or I guess that's actually not con. Excuse me, I am I'm, I'm keep confusing those. That's my apology. I, I'm sorry. Jordy's the one on the con. But why put him at ops, okay? Why put him up there in one of the primary stations? There's There's... Three primary stations on the bridge of the Enterprise D. There's con, ops, and security. Those are the three ones that are really essential and the highest priority. All three of those, from those three stations, you can effectively, not, not I should say you can't effectively, you can ineffectively control the entire ship from those three stations, okay? Now, obviously, everything else helps to actually make the ship move effectively and be efficient and actually you know, do a good job, but those three are the big ones, so why put them at one of the big ones? Why not just say, hey, why don't you hang up back here? But no, 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 no. We, the reason this is being done, and this is super obvious, is because we, the audience, need to have it hammered in just how special and amazing Wesley is. Because we haven't already had that with him literally saving the ship last episode while simultaneously endangering it. So. <clears throat> now, 
Now you have to ask to get Tasha back. Politely. I'm sorry. I hate to go into this diplomacy thing again, but there's a certain level. Like, I'll tolerate a lot. I'm actually the most tolerant person I know in real life. And I am very tolerant of different ideas and mentalities and cultures and personalities and customs and respect, all of that. But there are lines that after you cross, it's like, nope! And kidnapping one of my senior officers, I'm sorry, qualifies as a line to me. If I was told by my senior staff, again, all of them have to convince him of this, you have to ask politely for my kidnapped officer to come back. I think I would probably not react in quite the same way that Mr. Stewart, or excuse me, Mr. Mr. Picard does there. But that brings me to another point, really quick here. <clears throat> the blocking. I don't know if at this point uh, Mr. Mayberry had been fired or not, but I started noticing it pretty much from this scene onwards. The blocking in this episode is bad. It's really, really basic, and it's really, really boring. I've actually commented on this before, and one of the things I've noticed as I've been analyzing more and more television over the last four years uh, is that I start to notice directing uh, touches and, and inferences and camera angles. So for those who don't know what blocking is, just super quick. Blocking is exactly where you have your actors, you know, their spot that they're supposed to stand on, the little crescent moon or whatever, or the X if they use that, and then the position of the camera relative to them. Pretty basic, right? Good blocking usually tries to do something interesting with the scene, regardless of the characters, or tries to uh, pull something out of the scene, like, say, make a situation where you're seeing something dynamic, like the characters acting or moving or talking with each other, or uh, maybe you just have it so that you do a back-and-forth kind of a thing. The over-the-shoulder is one of the most basic blocking shots ever. You see it everywhere. But here we see what is basically the kind of thing I would expect from someone who just started television productions. And I should know, because I did the same damn thing when I just first started television productions. There's a shot of these people, and nothing really interesting in the background, and then there's a shot of these people, and nothing interesting in the background. No rule of thirds, no angling, no positioning, no nothing, just people, people. Very basic, very boring, and the whole episode does that. And again, I don't know if that's Mr. Mayberry, and I don't know if that's the assistant director who you know had to take over for him. I don't know. But it didn't help an already bad episode. So the captain must honor, honor their customs. Yar is brought in. Tasha Yar is brought in. She still has her combat. She's not really struggling. D don't, don't. I can already hear the counter-argument <laughs> in my head. I can hear it. The, well, well, she was, like, doing this. Yeah, exactly. She was doing this to a guy who was physically dragging her out. This is Tasha Yar. <laughs> Ignoring the fact that she, one of the first things she actually does in this series, in Encounter at Farpoint, is beat the crap out of an armored man with a gun. She also beat the crap out of two separate people in this episode. One of which was the second, and one of which was the, the, the... Oh, God, I forget what it was. It looked like judo to me, but anyways, the, the, the karate program, the, the martial arts program. So it's kind of established that she can kick all kinds of ass. And, yeah, they do mention that the guy has a bruised eye. Okay, yeah, whatever. Why hasn't she been destroying these people trying to get out? Like she probably can. 
Well, unfortunately, we do get an answer for that question. Because she's kind of... into it. She's kind of liking the attention. Troy actually has to trick her into admitting that later. And you know what? I'm going to talk about this now. I'm tired of putting it off. Towards the end of the episode, this is the worst moment of this. But at several points, it is implied that Yar kind of likes all of this. You know, the whole being kidnapped by a rich, virile man kind of a thing. You know, there's something exciting about it. And, of course, she likes being wanted, all that fun stuff. But the worst scene for me is the one right towards the end where What's-Her-Face, I don't remember her name, I don't care, says, Do you want him? And there's this pause. And Tasha considers it. Now, I'm sorry. But from a writing perspective, from a directing perspective, from a creation of fiction, the mere fact that she had, that her response was not automatic, that's indicative already. That she has to pause and think about it. Then, and I've got to skip ahead of my notes, then, when she's considering it, she says, no, there would be complications. And that's her excuse. That, you know, she's a career military and that he's down on, on the, 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 the planet and that that would be the reason why. Nothing else. Not the kidnapping, not the fact that he's a slime ball and a politician. Forgive me for being redundant. And the fact that he's just kind of a despicable human being in general. No, 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 no. There would be complications. This actually upsets me. And do you know why? Partially because of the previous episode. Here's the thing. I've been upset about this episode before. This is not my first time watching Code of Honor. It's not even my fifth time watching Code of Honor. And I've hated this episode ever since I first saw it. But I've never been upset about this in quite the same way. This is something brand new to me that I could be upset at this episode about. Because it's already been established. Again, even at this point, ignoring the future, both previous episodes established that Yar has come from an unpleasant place. Encounter at Farpoint. She had that whole little speech there. And, Naked Now, she had that scene with Data. And I lamented in the Naked Now rumination about how there could have been more there. That could have been the beginning of a character arc for her. But this Yar, this woman, who... <laughs> I mean, granted she was drunk at the time, so the validity of this is in debate, but I don't think it's hard to imagine that a woman who has grown up on a planet with rape gangs would want to have something more tender and intimate and soft and real, right? So her, all, so I could take all of her statements that she says to Data in that scene pretty much at face value. I could believe that. So this woman, under those circumstances, with her backstory is totally cool with everything that happens during this episode and actually kind of likes it and is tempted to stay with her kidnapper. I can't put into words how much that pisses me off. And before anyone brings this up, her gender is irrelevant for this. It could have been a guy and women, it could have been a guy and guys, and it could have been women and women. It does not matter. This is a person who has experienced a dark and horrible life and now is being put into circumstances that frankly should have triggered some PTSD, if I'm just being completely blunt. And now is liking it. Is tempted by it. That is disgusting. Whew. Apologies. 
I don't mean to yell so much. I, I apologize. So, um, you know how I mentioned earlier that everyone has to convince Picard to just kind of go along with this? I get the same feeling writing-wise from the next couple of scenes, because it feels like they reach the point where, you know, we have to have the battle to the death, which is an old TOS thing. Yeah, it's, it's an old sci-fi thing in general. It's not just TOS. You have to have the battle to the death. You know, classic, classic staple. Um, and there are ways to set up a battle to the death that are logical and make sense or flow with the character or inform the setting. Forgive me for being blunt, but I think the Amok time battle to the death was actually quite well done, for example. It made a lot of sense, and it was a very powerful character moment for three separate individuals. So, awesome, right? But there's also the battle to the death, which is clearly forced, because at some point someone said battle to the death needs to be the, 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 th the third act, you know, clincher. So we need to get to that point. Um, so let's ignore logic or reason or the 500 other ways we have of working through this situation that do not even involve the Prime Directive being violated. You have advanced technology. You can use it. You can be clever, episode, I swear. But no, let's throw it out of the window. Everyone, and most notably Troy and Yar, both are like, no, you, she, she needs to fight this battle to the death. And Picard's like, you're kidding. No, no, she has to fight this battle to death. It has to be a thing. Why? <laughs> Why? Uh, and then there's this scene, and I already mentioned this, where Riker gives a log entry explaining the episode 2 date. And it's funny because this is even another reason why that log entry is stupid. I already mentioned the previous reason. But in addition to that, it's like, this is a deadly serious situation. Hi, Wesley, why don't you head to Ops? Is, And I'm not even... I'm not even making that up. Watch the episode. That's how it goes. It's like, this is a deadly serious situation, and we see the ship panning, and then it cuts to, Hi, Wesley! Why don't you go to Ops? This is, like I said, I wish I could lore run this so you could literally see what I'm talking about. This is not me being hyper hyperbolic. This is not me making crap up. It's in the episode. I just watched it. And then they bring up the Prime Directive. Now, I can't do a proper discussion of the Prime Directive here. I can't. It's too vacuously defined at this point in time. Later on, they will do a, a pretty much... There is one TNG episode. It's called Pen Pals. I'll tell you about it right now. That is the episode I plan to talk about the Prime Directive when going through TNG, okay? Um, there, there's a couple other times it comes up, uh, notably the episode with Worf's brother. I can't think of the name of the episode off the top of my head. But that's going to be the big time to really discuss it. Here, they don't really say a lot about it. It's simply stated that there is a prime directive, and it's why they're not just taking the vaccine. Okay. I can at least kind of see where you're going with that. However, I know, I know. Hear me out, guys. I have a bit of a reputation amongst Trek fans who watch my show, all five of you, uh, to, to be a Prime Directive hater. And that's an earned reputation, because I hate how the Prime Directive is applied in later Star Trek. The reason I keep pointing the TOS and that wonderful scene between Spock and Kirk that I already referenced this episode, okay? I don't dislike the concept of the Prime Directive. I dislike how it is applied 
because, to be as blunt as possible, it is my opinion that in later Star Trek, I shouldn't say later Star Trek, in certain Star Trek episodes, because it's not always like this, even in later Trek, but in certain Star Trek episodes, the Prime Directive is applied as a specific method to not think and to not take action. I, I should clarify that. So, well, we could, you know, going back to that episode with Worf's brother, he used their advanced technology in a clever and intelligent way to help these people without violating the Prime Directive. And he did that. And we'll talk about that when we get there. And that's kind of my point, especially in this episode. Okay, you don't want to be Cold War Soviet Union. And I get that. Remember, this, this, the whole Cold War thing has influenced fiction substantially. In fact, the Prime Directive itself, by all accounts, and I'll do more research on this whenever I get to TOS, was written as a direct response to proxy political actions during the Cold War. Okay, I'm with that, and I get that those actions were very unpopular, and many of them were horrible. The Soviet Union and the United States both did a lot of crap during the Cold War, and I get that you want the Federation to be better than that. I'm with that. But again, you can still apply that intelligently. You can still say, well, we don't want to be the overwhelming force that just stomps in and takes what we want. You could say, and I'm just going to do this off, the, and I deliberately decided not to write this out. I want to see if off the top of my head I can come up with something. Okay, so here's my very first thought. Crusher looks at this thing and can't reproduce it, which is ridiculous and stupid, but let's accept it. Okay? Well, why don't we go ahead and get a shuttle, which has warp capability, and get this thing to an actual medical research facility and try to make more of it, or try to look into it more. Or maybe call in a second ship. You have more than one ship, Starfleet. And have them be like a go-between for this kind of action. Basically, get this thing to someone who can either reproduce it or maybe distill it such that it could actually be used on a larger scale. You know, this one vaccine, which again, that's still not how to vaccine. So let's, just keep, let's just call it a cure. Let's assume it's a cure. That's what they act like it is. So let's say you can make this cure, which is intended for, say, one dose, and, and maybe distill it so it's five doses, so you can at least do something for the worst cases. You could do something about that, okay? Now, that's going out of the background. In the meantime, we got to deal with these people. I forget the name of their race, the Illusions or something like that. Anyways, so we got to deal with these people. All right. Well, according to their political infrastructure, they have to showcase their courage and power by performing great feats. Why not contact Luton personally and say, you want to put on a show? And go ahead and allow him to defeat the Federation people, you know, the Starfleet crew, in a, a big elaborate set piece, and they've got all this technology and holograms, and, and, and explosives, and transporter beams, and God knows what else. I mean, there's even a later TNG episode that actually uses Starfleet-level tech to perform literal feats of magic. And by magic, I shouldn't say magic. Um, uh, magic show, you know, fake magic, in other words, right? I mean, you could do that. Again, even with the tech that's established here and now, you could do quite a bit with that. Reach out to him diplomatically and say, we need this vaccine, we need it now. Now, I get that you're playing at power struggles. Okay, fine. Whatever. Let's meet in the middle here. We need this now. And this is the really important thing that I think needs to be emphasized. Because there's two crises here. Yar, 
and the dead millions, or the, excuse me, dead, the potential dead millions, the, the big plague. Now, both of these are important. I mean, obviously, mathematically, one's more important than the other, but both of these still deserve high priority, right? So why not have it so that rather than just, yes, we'll do whatever you say and we'll ask exactly how you say, and we'll, uh, Picard even gives a goddamn speech in front of everyone saying, he has proven his honor and he has done everything by his code and therefore he's awesome. That's the part, I, I want to bring that up specifically because Picard, in bowing to him, with understanding of their political infrastructure, basically gives Luton the brownie points he wanted, the political affluence, the, the political sway, or whatever the hell you want to call it, that he wanted to begin with, right? He gains prominence. So don't give me that argument that we can't interfere politically, because they do interfere politically in this episode, deliberately and knowingly. So if we're going to do it, do it on our own goddamn terms. Do it now, rather than just, yeah, whatever. And do it in a way that makes sure we get this freaking vaccine and we get Yar back. God damn it. Use your freaking heads. So he's put on a show. Luton gains all his honor, gains his political prominence, and we now get someone who owes us politically, who is positively inclined towards us. So future possibilities of diplomatic connections. Great! And we get our vaccine, and we get Tasha Yar back, and we're out. Boom! We're done. That was all off the top of my head. But no. So, uh, Serena, that was her name. Serena has this scene where she's like, of course you, you want Luton. Of course, I mean, he's so powerful and awesome and all that fun stuff. And they have force fields. Of course they have force fields. Why wouldn't they? They have mega transporters and super blood. Apparently. That's how they got the vaccine. They just made their super blood. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One thing I wondered about the force field. They actually have a sh back you know, shot where the camera zooms out and we see the force fields go up into space. How high up do those go? I'm actually really curious. You know? Uh, so... Let's talk about the sexism. I've been kind of building up to this. Uh, the racism is obvious. I don't think I need to get into that. Uh, I've kind of talked about how badly written this episode is many times, and I've talked about why the Yar thing pisses me off, but I haven't talked about the sexism yet. So women are literally property in this episode. I shouldn't say all women, but the women on this planet are literally property. And, of course, everything with Yar also does not look good uh, from a perspective of a, uh, you know, looking at females. There's this scene, <laughs> oh, my God, where Picard... You know, he's, I am in the, he's talking to Luton, he's, I am in the grip of forces you cannot understand. And he says, no, I can understand some of them. She is a rather lovely female, which is such a dumb line. Um, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm a hell of a prude, but holy crap, Picard. Would you believe he was actually a, a ladies' man at one point in time? Anyways, so... <laughs> and they talk about the proper... The proper value... Of women. I mean, that's already bad. But let me get to the really big one. Let me just let me just hammer this out here. So the men the the women own the land and the men rule it, okay? Alright. Now that's that kind of statement, and I'm just gonna say this as bluntly as possible. It sounds like the kind of statement someone made thinking they were saying something else 
because they didn't think it through. Do you know what that literally means? It means women are property. No, I'm serious. Think about this for a moment. Really, actually think about it, unlike the writers of this episode. What that means is that the men have the ownership of actually running and administrating property and getting the benefits from it, you know, something that would normally be referred to as ownership, but the women own the land. But the way it's presented in the episode and the way it's shown in the episode, what that means is women are the currency of the land. The ownership of the land in terms of what we would use that term in English is on the men because they're the ones who gain the benefits and who manage it and administrate it and all, all that fun stuff. They rule the land, right? But you only rule over the land of your woman. She is the marker, the, 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 I, I, I hate to say this again, but she's the currency of the land you happen to control. You have this woman, she owns this land, that's your land, because you have her. Make sense? That's horrible. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to start with that. But then the episode can't even keep that self-consistent. Because there's this whole thing about she dies, which means the land transfers to him. Which already doesn't make sense by their own established rules, because what that should mean is the rule of the ownership of that land should pass to someone else, uh, like her daughter, for example, or one of his other wives. You know, if, if again, I, I, and I'm, I hate to keep doing this, but let's go, keep going back to this currency argument. If something ha like this, this, this is a bad example, but bear with me. Let's assume that this represents one acre of land. I, okay, you with me so far? So this object represents one acre of land. Okay. Now, if something happens to this and it burns or whatever, that acre is still there, obviously, and still has its value. But now this specific object can no longer, you know, demarcate that, right? It can no longer re be representative of that value. So you need some other object to be representative of that value. And it's not the guy who's holding it, because, of course, the men aren't objects. That's ridiculous. No. It has to go to another object, another piece of currency, another woman. And, there, and, and again, they could have all sorts of political rules uh, for how that, that inheritance, for lack of a better term, would go. But instead it defaults to him, except it defaults to her too, because when she is found to still be alive, she still has ownership of that land. Even though the death applies to, you know, finishing the argument, but now she can decide who... Ha but she gets all his things, but doesn't actually... Hang on. Carry the one. Nope. It doesn't make any damn sense. And I mentioned earlier that even as a kid, there was a specific scene that didn't make any damn sense to me, and this is the one I'm talking about. I even remember turning to Mom and being like, hang on, but if she's dead, then and, and, and by their own omission, the land goes to him, which already doesn't make sense, why would it default back to her to such an extent that she can actually choose to have a new man involved in this? And he then has nothing. Like, how does it... That does that, that is not thought out. They I get what they were going with. But the way they present it, it's clear that they weren't thinking it through. Also, there's the fight scene. I haven't really talked about the fight scene. It's, it's, it's dumb and bad. I'm sorry, I actually have a lot of sympathy for Star Trek choreographers, but uh, Star Trek is not exactly known for its good fight scenes. I mean, you, you know the... 
Puh! Maneuver, right? You know the one I'm talking about? The Star Trek Maneuver. There's that, and then there's the Puh! Puh! And then, of course, there's this one, where they always do this. I bet you know every single one of these, because Star Trek always uses the same damn moves. But even by Star Trek standard, the fight was just, uh-huh. Oh, and of course, let combat proceed uninterrupted. Wait, wait, hang on, she lost her weapon. One second. Oh, and that random bystander dies. Okay, whatever. And nobody reacts to it at all, because who cares? He's just some NPC who doesn't even have lines. <laughs> so then Crusher cheats death. I remind you that it's a major plot point in this episode that Beverly Crusher, Commander Crusher, on the Enterprise D, cannot replicate or reproduce this cure. That's a major plot point. In fact, it's the major plot point, because if they could, they'd be like, oh, well, let's beam Yar back up and get out of here. Peace! But no, they can't do that, right? So, I just want to make this abundantly clear, because one of the arguments I've actually heard, and I've actually heard this argument, is that, well, maybe, you know, Crusher wasn't that good of a doctor at this point in history, or maybe they just didn't have the expertise or the equipment on the Enterprise to do this. Okay, if we're to allow that argument, you also have to admit that with the technology and equipment on the ship, with Dr. Crusher, they prevent or reverse, depending on how you think of it, death. And we've seen how quickly this poison acts. And they prevent that. Now, of course, the definition of death has to be brought into equation for this, but obviously it's enough death for the law to take into account. Probably, I'd say, the point at which uh, most of the body has shut down, but not literal brain death. Because usually brain death is what we'd say is the final step there. So able to prevent brain death and bring the rest of her body back into functioning is still a pretty damn impressive medical feat, especially for someone who actively has a very virulent alkaloid-based poison going through her veins. But with, but with all that, she can't replicate or reproduce this goddamn cure. And then Yar's tempted... I, li I literally have a note on my... I'm not even kidding. That just says ARG in all caps. And then, just because we had to get a little bit more smug into this. Just a little bit more. The second, whose name I don't freaking remember, has this line about, you know... I say, God, I don't remember exactly what he phrases. Again, I wish I was lore running this. But he says something along the lines of... You may have advanced technology, but you have much to learn about culture. I'm sorry, freaking what? Are you actually condescending to us? Are you literally speaking down to us? A, after we have just directly intervened in your culture in such a way to put you into power, which apparently doesn't violate the Prime Directive. Or are you, are, are, are all the guys assholes on this planet? Is that just where we're going with this? Because I've heard the, the thought before that maybe it's just Luton that the rest of the people are fine. So the only real insight we have into how bad the rest of the people are is with the second, and he is just as, if not worse, he is just as bad, if not worse. Let me use my sentence properly here. Oh, this was painful going through this episode. Twice. And I'm, I'm scared of what everyone's going to think about this lamentation. It's going to be terrible, I'm sure. I... I hope you've at least enjoyed me ranting and raging about the stupid episode that I hate. <laughs>
thank God we're over the worst of it. And I mean that sincerely. There are still bad episodes coming up, and there are. Um, there's Outrageous Akana, there's Shades of Grey, there's Justice. But we are officially over the hump with TNG, as far as I'm concerned, from memory. We'll see if any of these you know, qualify for lamentation status as we get there. But for now, we can finally get to some Star Trek that I could actually really sit back and enjoy. And thank God for that. <laughs> so, I will see you guys next time.